Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. So I have a bunch of pre-written stuff that I can say about our sponsor, but I'll just tell you, I have been using Stitch Fix uh, basically since it started long before they were a sponsor of the show, and I absolutely love it. Um, I am someone who thinks of myself as having fairly good personal style, but um, I hate shopping. I just hate it. I do not like shopping. I do not like dressing rooms. I do not like trying things on. I do, however, love new clothes. And Stitch Fix is just a great solution for that. Uh, You take a short and simple style quiz, then you get a personal stylist who will send you a bunch of clothes um, that's actually tailored to whatever it is that you need clothes for. You can let them know if you've got a vacation coming up, if you've got a work event coming up, if you've got a wedding coming up. If you have something to dress for that you have not dressed for before, um, I have a friend who is just starting out in the workforce, and so she is doing a stitch fix of interview clothes. Um, I am lucky enough I don't have to do that anymore, interview for jobs, really, at least, you know, knock on wood, uh, not anytime soon. So I use it kind of as a treat for myself. So For whatever reason, if you would like to treat yourself or if you have a need for some new clothes in a specific genre, please go to stitchfix.com slash friends and you will get 25% off when you keep all five items in the box that they send you. So again, get your first fix at stitchfix.com slash friends and you will get 25% off if you keep all five items, stitchfix.com slash friends to get started with Stitch Fix today. I want to assure you, we know that America's strength ultimately comes from the foundation of our most cherished values in this country and from early in this administration. I'm proud to report that President Donald Trump has stood with people of faith and for our most precious freedoms every single day. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These, the show where we talk about the differences between us without letting them divide us. This week's show, we have two segments. The second one is a bit of a personal note on more than one level, actually. It's a couple of personal notes that I won't preview too much. Suffice to say that you should go ahead and make sure that you're ready to hear about depression and anxiety before you take a listen. This can serve as your trigger warning. And then the first segment, it's an interview with Sarah Jones. She is a reporter at the New Republic where she covers religion and social justice, but we're not going to talk about any story that she's written specifically. We're going to talk about her and her journey. What has brought her to the New Republic from a childhood as an evangelical homeschooled Christian. She is coming right up. I'd like to welcome to the show Sarah Jones. She is a staff writer for The New Republic, where she covers social inequality and religion. Welcome, Sarah. Thanks so much for having me. It's good to have you. You know, I've been a fan of your writing for a long time. Um, You cover religion pretty regularly, which... I actually want to get to at some point how that's not something that a lot of publications do. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I didn't know a lot about your personal story. You tweeted something about it. And then I I thought, well, that's an excuse to have a writer I like on. And I I started to look into it a little bit further. And you have a pretty fascinating journey. You (laughs) went from being a homeschooled Christian fundamentalist or being raised by a Christian fundamentalist family Mm -hmm. 
to going to a Christian college, mm-hmm. to working as an activist for secular causes, mm-hmm. to today being a writer who covers religion and social justice. That's that's a lot of living. <laughs> that about sums it up, yeah. So I guess you've said your family, let's start from the beginning. Like chrono- Chronological order is always always really reliable way to tell a story. <laughs> um so you you've said that your family identifies as Christian fundamentalist. What is what does that mean for them? You know, it's it's changed a lot for them over the years. Um, they used to be very very conservative politically. So about what you would probably expect from a family in the religious right. So we were homeschooled at least for most of our education. Um, We went to really conservative churches. We started out in independent fundamentalist Baptist churches and then went non-denominational. And, you know, my parents have undergone a journey of their own where, you know, they they are fiercely opposed to Donald Trump at the moment and feel, you know, very disappointed in evangelicals for lining up behind him the way that they have. Um, So it's, you know, (laughs) it's been a it's been a trip for everyone. Well, I'm just I'm curious. You said you were homeschooled and. I read you had little to no contact with the outside world. What was that experience? Yeah, I mean, we basically just went to church. So that and that was it. So, you know, for a few years we 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 didn't have TV. Um we didn't have internet access. We just had a radio and got the newspaper and, you know, we went to church and we were usually at church around 2 to 3 times a week depending or more depending on what was going on. Um, but yeah, it was a pretty pretty quiet existence. We lived in a really rural place. We lived at the edge of the Cherokee National Forest um, down um, down on the border of East Tennessee. Um, and you know that that did change the older we got. Um, we eventually got a TV with three channels, which was a big development. Um, and eventually I did I did go to school. I went to a Christian school and then I went to public school. After that, um, after getting kicked out of the Christian school. <laughs> um, so, you know, it did change as time went on. But in the beginning, especially, it was it was pretty isolated. Do you remember what your first kind of religious uh, beliefs were? Yeah, that that's interesting. So, you know, evangelicals and I think my parents would probably call themselves evangelicals more than fundamentalists now, although they didn't used to. Um, you're supposed to have this experience of being born again. And um, so that's that was my first religious belief, really, is that I, you know, I, I was a sinner and I needed to be born again so that I wouldn't go to hell. Um, and then, you know, the older I got, sort of, I pretty much took on my parents' beliefs as they were at that time. So um, biblical literalism from a conservative perspective, at least, um, they were, you know, our churches were pretty antagonistic toward rights for LGBT people and abortion rights. And uh, for a long time, those were my beliefs, too, because uh, that's, you know, that's basically all I knew. So I'm always really interested in people's conversion experiences because, you know, my conversion experience happened, you know, in my late 30s. Mm-hmm. And I'm super conscious about what my beliefs were before and after. Right. Mm-hmm. And kind of how I came to believe what I believe. And. And I even remember my first kind of religious conversations and religious beliefs um, because they had to be intentional because my parents weren't religious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? right. They were sort of marked out as like, we are having a religious conversation now because Anna is asking us questions about God, right? So I'm curious, like, when did you realize like that you had a belief system, if that makes sense, that there's like, you believe these things and not necessarily everyone believed them? Well, you are taught that in a very at a very early age because it it sets up the sharp contrast between true Christians and the rest of the world. And the secular world was a big, bad, scary place because people didn't believe the same way that we do. Um, and there's a lot of emphasis on you know what your worldview is and understanding your worldview as a worldview and how that um, contrasts with the worldviews that other people have. So they do, at least in my experience, I can't speak for everyone, you were encouraged to think of it as a belief system, as the only correct belief system. Otherwise, you wouldn't understand why the world was as sinful as it was or why yours was superior to the beliefs that other people had. But from what I read, it sounds like you started to have some suspicions about that worldview pretty early on, like in high school. Yeah, that that's true. So I grew up in a really poor area. It's uh, 
you know, Appalachian, Virginia. It's nobody, well, a few people have a lot of money, but most people don't. Uh, it's a very conservative area. It's conservative politically and conservative religiously. And, you know, those those two things walk hand in hand where I'm from. And I think, you know, that's true for a lot of people. And so one of the first sort of cracks was, you know, this area is very deviled and everyone's in church praying all the time. And, and yet we're, we're still very poor. So if God's blessing us, it kind of, I don't, I don't see a lot of evidence for it. Um, so the conservative politics actually fell away before kind of my, my conservative doctrinal beliefs, of, if that makes sense, because I followed that realization mm-hmm. with um, pretty, pre- being pretty pre- strongly opposed to the invasion of Iraq, even though everyone else around me loved it. Um, and I didn't see how that squared up with my, what, what I was supposed to believe as a Christian. And um, it kind of just started a process of asking more questions about why did I believe what I believe? What was the justification for it? What did the Bible actually say? And, you know, what what did, you know, maybe the world wasn't such a scary place as I thought it was. What were the influences that you had? Were you just asking questions? I mean, you had the Internet by this point. Were you were you out looking for other people asking the same questions? Yeah, I mean, I had limited internet access, but even limited internet access made a huge difference because kind of even, you know, even on the internet, you can meet all kinds of different people and they didn't seem like they were all going to hell and they certainly didn't seem like they were out to get me or, you know, you know, direct me away from Christianity so that, you know, didn't seem to to line up with things that I had been told previously. And then I got to college and where I went to college, your internet use was monitored, all of it. So you still had to be very oh, careful wow. about what you were looking up, but I could still look up a lot and it was enough. Um, and at that time I was following the news a lot more and I, I was still reading more and, and, you know, that, that kind of not some further cracks into it. So you mentioned yourself that as a evangelical, you know, you're supposed to have had a bright light moment at some point. There's supposed to be a, a time at which you say, you know, I accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. There's a before and after. Mm-hmm. Is there a before and after moment for your unbelief? Yeah, I I think so. I mean, I I kind of knew things were on the rocks for a while. I mean, evangelicals like to talk of of your belief as a relationship, right? So a relationship between you and, and Jesus, and our relationship was on the rocks, and it had been for a while. Um, but I still believed. I mean, it's very hard to fathom believing absolutely anything else. You know, I know people from the internet who don't believe the same way, but I don't know anyone in real life who doesn't believe the same way. Um, but I had found this really good church when I was in college, and I still think really fondly of that church. I think they were doing really good work. And um, I remember sitting there, and our, we were all singing a hymn, and I remember thinking, you know, if I don't believe here, I'm just not going to believe anywhere. I just don't believe any of it anymore. And, you know, that that was kind of the end of it for me. I, I didn't go back to church. But you were still at a Christian college. Right. So that was that was tricky because the school I attended, we were required to go to church and we were also required to do like at least one spiritual activity for, you know, per week. And I have to say, even if I hadn't left the Feth, I, I don't think that re- prescribing religious activities for people really helps the way that school thought it did. Um but I lied. I just lied on all my reports. I told them I was going to church and I told them I was going to Bible study. And I was very lucky in that I wasn't cut out because I would have been expelled and I wouldn't have had anywhere to go at the time. Did you feel did that? I mean, I imagine that must have felt emotionally, I mean, pretty isolating. Yeah, you, you feel very trapped. And, you know, I was questioning a lot of things at the same time. And I had I, I couldn't, I didn't have anyone that I could really be very honest with. And the stakes were pretty high if anyone found out that I'd questioned any of it. Um, I, you know, our relationship with my parents was a little bit rocky or I, I didn't know if I could count on going home. And without a college degree, I didn't know what else I could do either. So I'm curious, where do you think your ability to just keep going in that lonely journey came from? You know, I guess maybe for the same reason I ended up being a journalist, right? So like if you want to reduce journalism down to the the simplest element of the profession, it's a drive to tell the truth about something and you can have an opinion and you can still, you know, you can report that 
opinion accurately, you still have an obligation to tell the truth. And, you know, evangelicals similarly say that they, they feel an obligation to the truth because, you know, he's the, you know, their beliefs are the truth. Um, and I, I, you know, I may have left the faith, but I, I couldn't quite, <laughs> I, I couldn't quite get rid of that idea. And, you know, I, if I couldn't convince myself that it was true, then what on earth was I doing with my entire life? And I wanted to, to know what the, the truth was. So I, I kept it up and I kept asking questions. And eventually I realized, you know, for practical reasons, I was probably just going to have to keep my head down at least a little bit and just endure it, <laughs> graduate, move on, and then figure out what sort of person I wanted to be. And I read in a profile of you, your decision to keep quiet about your atheism like had some very real consequences besides just lying. Yeah, it did. Um, are, are you th- are you talking about the New York Times story? Yeah, yeah, right. So I was I was assaulted when I was in college. I was the victim of an attempted rape, and one of the reasons I didn't report it. Uh, well, there were a lot of reasons, as there are, I think, for a lot of people who who don't report that kind of thing. But for me, one of them was the person who did it knew that I wasn't exactly a, a devout Christian anymore, and that could have gotten me expelled. Um. And so you, you know, I, I've kind of felt I didn't have a lot of a lot of choices at the time. I mean, there was no guarantee, even if that I had been a devout Christian, that if I had reported it, I wouldn't have somehow gotten in trouble for like premarital sexual activity, even if not all of it had been, you know, even if some of it had been violent and an attempt at coercion. It, I, you know, I didn't have a lot of faith that there wouldn't be consequences for me. You eventually, though, uh, filed a Title IX complaint. Yeah, yeah, the... I did. So that's a that's. I feel like your decision to go from not talking about it to filing a Title IX complaint it mirrors this other journey you've had, which you you kind of went from, so I'm quietly not going and even lying about not going to church to becoming an activist in pro secular causes. So you you didn't go the route of staying quiet. You, you were quiet for a little while, but then you got really loud. I did. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Still true. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I was angry and I, you know, I, I'm often still angry. I think there's a way to be angry and to be constructive with that anger. And I think for me, one of the biggest processes that I had to undertake, you know, leaving the church, but it also just kind of becoming a, a, an adult who can hold down a job <laughs> and such was to like learn how to channel that anger in a really constructive way. And I couldn't do anything about what happened to me while I was at school. I couldn't even really change the character of the school. It was it was going to stay the way it was. And, you know, a statute, there is like a kind of a statute of limitations. And it had been too long since, you know, what happened to me. And I couldn't file a Title IX complaint regarding that specific instance. But I could file one about the school's general failure to adhere to just Title IX in other respects. And, you know, I didn't even know that Title IX existed when I was a student. And so that was one of the reasons I filed later. But, you know, it was just like, yeah, I was angry. And I thought, you know, I, I'm i not an outlier. I know this is happening to other people. Like, even if I don't know specific instances, statistics tell me that this is still going on. And they should know that they have options and they should know that other people have dealt with this and they should know that they, you know, they don't have to keep quiet about it the way that I kept quiet about it if they don't want to. So the journey from being devout to being an atheist to being a a fairly out loud atheist is a pretty publicly visible one. There's there's other people that have done that. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of really loud atheists out there. (laughs) Yeah. But... It is still a choice, and, mm-hmm. and you had you you made that that choice, and you made that choice knowing that your family was still devout, um, and and having connections to a community that's yeah. pretty devout. You know, you said that sort of about the desire to tell truth and what drew you to journalism, but I'm really curious about kind of the internal processes of of doing that. You, I kind of just got to the point. I mean, all of those things matter, right? Like, I, it's not like I stopped caring about how it would affect my family. It's not like I stopped caring about the fact that I didn't really have a community anymore, right? Like, I'm I'm getting married next year, and my, my side of the aisle is probably going to be pretty empty because I don't really have childhood friends who would show up to my secular wedding, you know? It's not how it works. Um, so, 
I, you know, it is difficult, but I just really got to the point where I felt like I was tired of lying. I, I was tired of, or at least lying by omission, if not outright lying. I was tired of keeping my head down. I wanted things to change. I wanted things to be better people for people. I wanted things to be better, especially for girls who were coming up in this world after me. And I, there was no way to do that without, I felt, without going public. And you do, you, you make the choice to go public about atheism. That's what I did in my case. But I made a secondary choice as well, which is that I was not going to go the Richard Dawkins, Bill Maher route either. People don't have to leave religion, I think. I, it's just something that I, I did. And I, I wanted people to take my experiences seriously and to take the experiences of people like me who have made similar journeys seriously. And there was no way to do that and keep quiet at the same time. Squarespace. Again, not lying to you, I have been using Squarespace since before they became a sponsor. They are one of the most elegant and easy solutions to starting your own website, whatever it is you want to do. My personal website is just, you know, my website. It's onamariecox.com if you would like to visit it. It's a good example. I think of a personal website on Squarespace. It basically is just a collection of my clips, including, for instance, maybe you didn't know, I write a column for Sci-Fi's Fangirls Vertical about the intersection of politics and science fiction. You can go to onamariecox.com and you will see all of those things. And it's very easy to keep it up because Squarespace makes it easy. Now, I have a personal website, but if you want to sell stuff, if you want to do a newsletter, if you want to have a gallery of something, whether it's your artwork or someone else's artwork, or maybe it's a wedding that you are doing, anything you want to do, they they make it easy. They have free and, and secure hosting. They have built-in search engine optimization and analytics that help you grow in real time. And with Squarespace, you never have to worry about glitchy looking mobile interfaces because everything is optimized for mobile right out of the box. With Squarespace, the power is in your hands to create your own website. Yes, I'm reading now, but it's good stuff. Keep dreaming, but make it a reality and make it stand out with a website from Squarespace. Head to squarespace.com friends for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code friends to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. Again, squarespace.com friends for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code friends to save 10% off the first purchase of a website or domain. Journalist Mehdi Hassan is known around the world for his televised takedowns of presidents and prime ministers. He hosts Upfront on Al Jazeera and is a columnist for The Intercept. And in his new podcast, Deconstructed, Mehdi unpacks a game-changing news event of the week while challenging the conventional wisdom in a tight 30-minute package, a little quicker than what we do here. He starts his show with his take on one topic and what the mainstream news is getting wrong or what context is being missed. And then he goes into a deep analysis and conversation with his guest or guests of the week. And get this, his guests have included Judd Apatow, Bernie Sanders, and Hassan Minhaj. So he kind of covers the gamut. I would say, in terms of who you might be expecting. Um, It's everyone from comedians to politicians to, for instance, Stefan Clark's fiance. So you're going to hear from a lot of different people. And the show has covered such topics as the violence in Gaza from the perspective of Israeli activists against the occupation and, of course, police shootings, as through the eyes of the fiance of Stefan Clark. Also, he's talked about the dangers of John Bolton with former diplomats. As a Brit and a Muslim, an immigrant based in Donald Trump's Washington, D.C., Mehdi Hassan gives a refreshingly provocative perspective on the ups and downs of American and global politics. Deconstructed is a show that cuts through political drivel and media misinformation to give you a straight take on one big news story of the week. It is out every Friday, just like this pod. You can listen and subscribe at theintercept.com slash deconstructed or on any podcast platform. I've read some of the things that you said about so-called movement atheism, and uh, I agree with a lot of it. (laughs) And we have had mutual friend Chris Stedman on the show uh, to talk about, in that case, the links between movement atheism and the Mm -hmm. alt-right. But you said in an interview with him um, that, you know, sexism is pretty fundamental in both movement atheism and uh, Christianity. Yeah. I Why think, do you think that is? Yeah, it's it's a good question. I still wonder about that. I mean, with, you know, the religious tradition I grew up in, it's 
Because of two factors, I think. And one is that people are interpreting the Bible in a certain way, but also that they are interpreting the Bible in a certain way because of pre-existing prejudice, right? It's like almost a chicken and the egg kind of thing. And in movement atheism, I think it's it's similar, except that they don't have a religious text to to like go to to justify their pre-existing prejudice. So it's like evolutionary psychology or, you know, they justify it by I'm just being rational, you know, rationally, this is just how it is. This is just common sense. You know, rape victims can lie. Were you saying that rape victims can't lie? You know, that kind of thing. Um, And in practice, it feels very similar to be on the receiving end of it. I'm not quite sure how to ask this question. Um, So when I look at my personal history of activism and political beliefs, Mm. I can see pretty clearly where my own uh, I hope somewhat similarly noble desire for truth telling comes from. Mm -hmm. And it's my family. Yeah. Uh, My father was an activist and instilled in me like a really thorough um, kind of value that, you know, the powerless need to be protected, that Mm -hmm. people who don't have things need to be given things, you know, like um, and that when you see unfairness, you you take action on it. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, I hear you talk about some similar things. Does, do you think that your desire for social justice came from that same kind of, you know, family value? Yeah. It's like, Even though you've, 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 you've sort of alluded to it in terms of like just because you, you know, um, left the religion didn't mean you, re- you left mm-hmm. like the values necessarily. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's true. It took me a while to to rationalize that to myself but you know the 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 fact of the matter is like (laughs) you can't run away from your past really like it's it's still part of you and my upbringing is still part of me and it wasn't completely bad even though I made decisions different decisions and my parents raised me to be a person of conviction they raised me to have very strong beliefs they raised me to be willing to suffer for those beliefs that sounds a little bit insufferable but you know what I mean like if you take a stand on something you're like I do actually I I totally do yeah, I do. And I'm just funny because like my dad's actually like a pretty um, uh, passionate atheist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but he happened to raise me with these same kinds of values, which I mean, they're exactly parallel in the idea that like if you see injustice, you need to act on it or you're complicit in it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which I do now as a Christian see in the Christian communities that I want to be a part of. Yeah. I that was a beef I always had with atheists. They didn't seem to realize that there was this other side of Christianity too, right? And people can interpret it in different ways. And this this willingness to take an unpopular stand can also be turned to taking stands for LGBT people, for the rights of women, for racial justice. Like it doesn't have to be anti-LGBT and it doesn't have to be misogynist. Um, but yeah, I, I'm I'm very grateful to my parents to raise it to for raising me not only to be a person of conviction, but to at least to have a a, a concrete discernible belief system um, that I can refer to. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think they imagined it would end up quite the way that it did, but it did, and I'm I'm still very grateful for a lot of those those early lessons. And you know, one of my favorite Bible verses, I I think it's Micah six eight, was just a love mercy, do justice, and walk humbly. And I don't walk humbly with God, which is how that verse finishes. But I I hope that. I, I haven't quite abandoned the other values there. I believe that's Hillary Clinton's favorite Bible verse, too. <laughs> it's a good um, verse. Uh, <laughs> uh, as friend of the show, um, uh, Amy Chozik records in her, her uh, book, Chasing Hillary. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you mentioned, I mean, you mentioned that your family is is still, you know, Christian fundamentalist, but has now come to see a divide between themselves and the evangelists that follow Trump. I mean, I think that speaks well of your family, if I do say oh, so yeah. myself. Yeah. Um, and it also speaks to how it is that the values that they raised you with might, you know, still be consistent no matter mm-hmm. what your religious beliefs might be. Like you and your family still share these same set of values. Yeah. Yeah, we absolutely do. I mean, they've taken plenty of unpopular stances in, in their in their church. Um uh, and a lot of those stances have been political. They, they certainly aren't liberals by any stretch of the imagination, but they don't like Donald Trump, and they definitely don't like Ted Cruz either. So I can live with that. 
You know what? I'm going to just deviate a little bit from my planned conversation with you to note one. You will probably appreciate this. That <laughs> the thing that's bothering me about Ted Cruz's um, story of his faith, mm-hmm. which is he doesn't have a conversion experience. And you must realize how weird that is. It is weird. It is weird. I mean, it's always difficult to question the sincerity of a person's faith. But I, I, I would not think I don't think that my parents are certainly the only devout Christians who've noticed that and wondered about it. Yeah. Like, you see, for people who don't realize this, if you're an evangelical Christian, part of your stump patter, like part of the thing Mm -hmm. that you're used to talking about in public on a regular basis is that day that you gave your life over to Jesus. Right. Right. Like you're just it's I recognize it as a person in recovery. You Mm -hmm. know, like Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's it's like the moment you got sober, like it's a thing that you're kind of just in your community. It's a thing you tell everyone. Right. Yeah. Yeah. you, You it's. It's just par- part of who you are. And it's just so strange that Ted Cruz has never mentioned it. Yeah. No, it's strange. You're and, right. And, like, that is your <laughs> testimony. What testimony are you going to share at church? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I just, I mean, I, I I'm, anyway, um, that's a, a little bit of a sidebar. And hopefully <laughs> Ted Cruz will stop mattering in the in the public, um, you know, dialogue eventually, very soon. Yeah. Not just eventually. Um <laughs> <laughs> and we won't have to wonder about his testimony anymore. Right. Um, but for the time being, it still still really bothers me. Um, so, you know, I mentioned at the top, and it's, and I think people can tell from the way we've been talking so far, which is that you still are very interested in religion. Mm-hmm. And in fact, cover it, I mean, I would say, again, as a religious person myself, I think with a lot of sympathy and obviously a lot of knowledge. Mm-hmm. And... One of the pieces you wrote not too long ago was actually about the implosion of the religious religious news service, which mm-hmm. is an interesting story in of itself, and people should seek it out. But um, it's also sort of a, a tale about our time, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an example of another way that conservatism is creating what I might you might call it news deserts that people don't even know they're living in, mm-hmm. like an absence of coverage that people don't even realize is missing. Uh, that religion, religion, like the religious news service was covering religion at a time when it's like local news, mm-hmm. you know, um, it's this incredibly important part of a lot of people's lives, but the coverage of it just sort of disappears. I guess I'm curious what you think about the disappearance of religious news could mean for us. I, I think it's really concerning. I like every religion reporter I've spoken to, I think in the last three years is, has been has said basically that, that it is very concerning because uh, this is such a huge slice of American life, even when you move beyond Christianity and um, and into other faiths as well. And it's just not, there is there are some outlets doing it really well and there are still religion reporters, but it, it you know, generally um, coverage is shrinking and, and that's kind of disturbing. You know, we talk about evangelicals supporting Donald Trump, right? Well, that's true on the face of it, but... Um, you know, why? Who are they? What exactly do they believe? Are there internal debates? Is there a rift? What's going on? How is this going to change evangelicalism? How does it stack up against demographic change? Like, there's just so many questions surrounding this this one this one truism, and it's important to dig into that if you're going to you know present accurate coverage of I don't know what you want to call it like America under Donald Trump and it's part of it and we just don't have a lot of people who are who are getting paid to do that work at the moment. I do think the parallel to local news works um, mm-hmm. in the sense that it's uh, covering religion is a not sexy to some people mm-hmm. you know um, it seems like a esoteric or specialized or parochial. Um, and also it tends to mean that the, it, get, it gets covered only as a kind of aside in larger stories and that national news reporters just kind of go with kind of co- conventional wisdom, mm-hmm. you know, or truisms. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that means that, I mean, basically stereotypes get perpetuated and those stereotypes that get solidified and I don't know how else to put it, like... It, like if you, all you read about evangelicals is that they support Trump, I mean, I think that's sort of almost means that it becomes true mm-hmm. that because <laughs> mm-hmm. then if you're an evangelical, like you start to think that maybe, well, if I don't support Trump, then I'm not evangelical or I don't have any company in my mm-hmm. lack of support for Trump. 
Um, and then also, like you said, also it, it gives this picture of America as a mostly Christian nation if you're not covering the other parts of, you know, the other conversations in religion that are happening. Like, what do you see as the big holes in in coverage of religion? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. So, you know, when we're talking about evangelicals and Trump, we're always talking about white evangelicals. And I would like to see more coverage mm-hmm. of what that could mean for evangelicalism as a tradition in the long run. Um, because it's not going to stay white forever. I just I wrote I just wrote about um, an academic book along those lines. It's not going to stay white forever. So what is it going to do next? Where is it going to go? And where are the Trumpian Christians themselves going to go? I I don't know. Um, but I would like to see more of that. I'd like to see more coverage of the religious left. Um, is it sort of reviving itself? Is it becoming more of a force than it was? Woohoo! um and yay too but like (laughs) you know evangelicals trump okay that's fine but you know the united states conference of catholic bishops um has been very vocal at least condemning condemning trump's immigration policies um yeah so you know are people is that going to draw more people into catholicism like I, i that's that's a question that that interests me um yeah those are just a couple. They're a bunch, probably. Yeah, I think, I, like I said, I think that the space also of covering the non-Christian um, religious practices in America, yeah. which are, you know, growing, um, is important. And also, you know, I feel like there's this weird space that's opened up for the coverage of um, other kinds of hocus pocus beliefs, which I, I'm again, I'm a believing Christian, and and I don't mind kind of lumping it in it's kind of hocus pocus in a way but like this credulity that's extended to new age mm-hmm. and wellness coverage seems to me almost like what you get when you don't cover religion if that makes sense at all like it's yeah. if you if you covered religion more maybe you'd be less credulous about wellness <laughs> I mean, yeah i mean or that... at least have a ear for when people are talking like cults right yeah i think that's True. So I think like both like the sort of wellness culture and also Silicon Valley or I see them. I see Silicon Valley is actually a very religious place and I see wellness culture as also being actually very religious. And um, so it always surprises me that we don't see them covered that way more more often because it seems very obvious to me as someone who used to, to have to, to have religious beliefs, um, this idea that, you know, if you just eat a certain way or drink a certain juice, waters, like I, I, I hear that, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow is really into different waters um, and then you're going to be fine. Or, you know, Silicon Valley, sort of this this persistent belief almost in, in profits, like always looking for the next Steve Jobs, like he's he's going to pick up the torch of the faith or something. It's fascinating to me. And I think they actually make a lot more sense viewed as, as religious movements, new religious movements. Yeah. And also the magical thinking of technology, not just around Steve Jobs, but around, yeah. you know, life extension, for instance, or, you know, consciousness uploading. Yeah, transhumanism, but also the idea that technology is obviously a a social good. It's just a very narrow definition of progress. And it's almost like, yeah, self-reinforcing belief. Well, if it's progress, it must be good. And obviously it's going to change society and obviously the results will be good. So I'm curious, do you you have any like hocus pocus or magical beliefs left? Are you completely... Um, beyond all of that? Or do you have any lingering kind of sense of the oneness of the universe or horoscopes or water that might be special? <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm pretty much a materialist. So I, I horror movies, especially horror movies about demons, uh, still scare the hell out of me. And like, there's always this thought in the back of my mind, like maybe... Maybe they're right. Maybe there are really demons. I don't know. Um, but otherwise, um, not so much. No. And yeah, I, I don't, I don't, I, I can be kind of superstitious, but that's, that's probably about it. Yeah. I someday want to write a piece about how I think I've always wanted to believe Hocus Pocus stuff. Yeah. You know, like it would be kind of cool if ghosts exist mm-hmm. or if astrology worked. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, and basically with Christianity, I've found like an, an opportunity to get to believe some really kind of wacky stuff. 
Although what I love about it actually is that it's to me it's more about the practice than the beliefs, you know? Like yeah. in the same way you can believe whatever you want to believe about yoga, but what yoga actually does for you is makes you physically well. Right. Yeah. You know, if you practice it. Yeah. Um so I feel like that my practice of Christianity is actually what makes me spiritually well, not the mm-hmm. unfortunately not like the cool hocus pocus whatnot. But I might be somewhat alone and not alone, but I know that's a minority <laughs> with my co-religionists. Um, but that's not true. There's a lot of people who understand the practice part of it as yeah. being the most important part. I think it's really important before we wind up to ask you this question, which is, is there anything about your experience and your journey that might give people insight on how to engage with the conservative religious right? Yeah. Yeah, there's... Interesting, because I ask myself this a lot, because I I can't really argue that, you know, a, a, a queer person should should engage with someone who doesn't think that they deserve civil rights. Um, so I think about it more from the perspective of journalism and how to cover these people. Um, and I think, you know, it's complicated. I, I think you have to take them seriously, right? You have to assume that they believe exactly what they're saying and, you know, not treat them like it's, you know, that they're small town dupes who've bought into hokum and um, that it makes them less serious as a result. Um, it's, it's a sincere belief. Um, some of their beliefs can be intrinsically toxic. Um, but otherwise, you know, I think a lot about people back home who believe in in faith healing, for example. And a lot of a lot of people would say, you know, obviously this is this is crazy, right? But there are other reasons for it. You know, it's a poor place. People can't afford to go to the doctor. I can't really find it within myself to condemn them for believing in, in faith healing. There's there are certain material reasons that you know, where it makes sense. Um, And I'd like to see more people take that into consideration when they're just thinking about the question of religious belief in general. And I do think even if we're thinking about the more Trump-esque strand of evangelicalism, it's becoming a cultural identity to people, I think. It's not even becoming like a, a, a seriously considered set of religious beliefs, although they believe it sincerely. I think it's becoming a, a cultural identifier. Um for them in a way that, you know, I think is the culmination of a process that started kind of way back with the moral majority in the 80s. Oh, I, I definitely agree. I mean, I think that if you go to a Trump rally, people will tell you they're evangelical Christians and they haven't been to church in months. Yeah. Um, Which and my probably parents couldn't even would tell you, die. Like, they would die. <laughs> I, right. Oh, totally. And, and they probably even can tell you, like, there is like the six point definition of what it means to be evangelical. Yeah. Um. And they probably couldn't even tell you what those things are. What they think it means is they're anti-immigration, for one thing. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. It's astounding, but it is a culture. It's a political identifier. Yeah. Yeah. No, totally. And I think a racial identifier increasingly. I mean, we, there's yeah. that story. Oh, it, and I think yeah. it was the Washington Post about the church in Alabama. And I, you yep. know, I thought that was a really good example yep. of that. Yeah, well, those Bible verses, they weren't about brown people. Yeah, apparently, I mean, I which would have been a shock to li- Jesus himself, no li- doubt. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and to the people that wrote it. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> it's but, just, you know. yeah. Um, you believe what you have to believe. Yeah. Uh, one more question on that and, and what insight you can give based on your experience, which is that, so I'm in general fascinated with conversion. Um, and I know my story and I know a little bit about your story. People who write into the show often are asking basically about a kind of evangelism Mm -hmm. because they're curious about how they can spread their message, which is usually the one of like, you know, enlightened social justice warriorism uh, to people in their lives who don't believe um, as they do. Now, I know from my story, I feel like there's when people try to evangelize to me about Christianity, nothing they said really worked. Mm -hmm. It had to be something that I experienced. Mm-hmm. Are there things you think that people can say to those they, they disagree with about politics that can help convince them to change their minds? Yeah, possibly. I think, I think honestly, one of the key things is just meeting people who are, are different for you. Because I know when I was still very conservative and Christian, it was meeting people who were different for me. They believed different things. They'd had different lives, different experiences. 
And it really kind of forced me to reckon with my own beliefs. I don't think that's necessarily going to be true in every instance. But yeah, sometimes just the act of building a relationship with someone who doesn't come from the same background, it can it can do a lot. And so can, I think, putting things in very concrete material terms. So like, you know, I, I don't think people should shy away from areas of disagreement. I, I think that they should bring those out in the open and talk about them and talk about, you know, the way that maybe certain beliefs have been weaponized against them. I think it's important for people to hear that. Um, and I, I, as to whether or not it'll, like, I don't know, make people less um, conservative on issues like gay rights or abortion rights, I don't know. But I think it would make them think. And if they aren't, you know, if they're kind of sticking to their to their little church and community bubbles, they're probably not being asked to, to really think out critically about what it is they believe. Again, with the caveat that as long as it's safe for you to engage yeah. with these people, yeah. um, if you're different from they are, uh, which is unfortunately an actual real concern, yeah, um, people's safety among evangelicals. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank um, you. Thank you. People don't remember it. They can find your writing in The New Republic covering social inequality and religion. And I will add, because it's one of my favorite things that you write about, which is that you do do a fair amount of like media criticism <laughs> um, of the right, um, the way the right covers um, religion, the way the right covers minorities and whatnot. Yeah. And I, those are some of my favorite reads of yours. They're, they're not, I don't know if that's good, very Christian of me, but um, <laughs> I, lo- I love it. I love your takedowns. So, Thank you. Hope people look for those. Thanks so much, Sarah. Thank you. of us do not refresh our bristles every three months. I should tell you, this is a toothbrush ad. There are all kinds of bristles, I suppose, but you should change the ones on your toothbrush uh, every three months, apparently. And 75% of us don't do that. And we also don't visit the dentist every six. I will tell you that I do both of those things, but that's because I'm a little weird about my teeth. But you can also do it in a more fun way if you use Quip. Their subscription model is a thoughtful and inexpensive solution for people who want to make it easy to keep up on these simple habits that will improve their oral health. Let Quip do the thinking when it comes to your teeth, and Quip is also just kind of cool, which is why I say it's sort of fun. It's like a neat little device. It's not just a normal toothbrush. It is a thing that you will enjoy using. It is a fraction of the cost of bulkier electric toothbrushes, and yet it still packs the right amount of vibrations to help clean your teeth. The built-in timer helps you clean for the dentist-recommended two minutes with guiding pulses that remind you when to switch sides. And because of that, the two-minute guiding pulses and and when to switch sides and you're brushing for the right amount of time, well, you probably will actually keep up on your every six-month dentist appointment because that dentist appointment will be much more enjoyable because you'll have been doing things right. Now, Quip subscription plans are also for your health, not just convenience. They deliver new brush heads on a dentist-recommended schedule every three months for just $5, including free shipping worldwide. Quip also comes with a mount that suctions right to your mirror and unsticks to use as a cover for hygienic travel wherever you take your teeth, which is, for the moment, I hope, everywhere. And finally, everyone loves Quip. They were on Oprah's O-List. They were named one of Time's Best Inventions. And they are the first subscription electric toothbrush accepted by the American Dental Association. They are also backed up by a network of over 20,000 dentists and hygienists and hundreds of thousands of happy brushers use Quip every day. So get your first free refill pack at getquip.com slash friends. Again, that's your first refill pack for free at getquip.com dot com slash friends. That's G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash friends for your first refill pack free. This episode is also sponsored by Victorious. Victorious is streaming fitness, live group fitness classes that you can participate from anywhere at any time. They offer real-time fitness classes that you can stream live from your computer, phone, tablet, or television And it's not just that the classes are streaming, they are interactive. You can do high-intensity interval training, yoga, boxing, cardio, and more. The classes last from 35 to 45 minutes. They happen throughout the day and evening. Um, They are of varying intensity and kinds of workout. You can train with some of the best trainers from the best studios in the U.S. Victoria's trainers are renowned 
qualified, entertaining, and personable, and they will interact with you to help you keep motivated. The classes are challenging and entertaining with curated playlists and high production values. Victorious believes in a fun environment that ups the energy and keeps your attention because if you don't enjoy the process, you'll never achieve the results. And you can take unlimited classes each month for the price of a single fitness class. There is no equipment to buy, no getting locked into a long-term contract. All you need is you. Now here's the, this, this they wrote, but it's also true. If you are like me, Committing to a class can be a great motivator, but having to travel and show up at a fitness studio can be more challenging than the workout. And that's what's really cool about this service. You are committing to a class at a specific time on a specific day, uh, which I think is really good for people like me that otherwise have really free schedules. Because if I say, well, I'm going to I'm going to work out at some point, um, that's not as powerful as I'm going to work out at 430. So the classes are classes, but you can do them from home. I have been mainly doing yoga because that's where I'm at right now (laughs) is yoga. But they have the high intensity interval training. They have boxing. They have cardio. Um, You can do almost any kind of fitness that you can name. And if you use victorious.com slash friends, you will get all of the classes free for a month. It will change the way you work out. And I want to thank Victorious for sponsoring the podcast and for giving me a chance to try out those classes. Victorious.com slash friends, a free month of workouts. So, hi. I have not been great lately. Um, Been uh, sorting through the side effects of a new med, which is exciting. And just kind of trying to bear with it, uh, knowing that I'm going to have some relief on the other side of it. But at the moment, going through some real frustration and occasionally feeling pretty hopeless. And I've been intending to talk about it here. And I've been intending to talk about it in a way that might be constructive for you and for me. But there's a part of me that always thinks that uh, talking about my issues here on this pretty popular podcast that's supposed to be about listening is really self-indulgent and that it doesn't really fit in with the mission of the show. And so I decided not to talk about it, even though I'm talking about it right now, but I'm talking about it right now because I got an email from someone sort of asking for the show's advice, which is something that I have done in the past and we're going to start doing again. And I'll give you the email address after this segment. But this gentleman's email, well, it made me realize that there's some good to be had for me sharing with you and you sharing with me. Here's what he had to say. I write this email tentatively and I'm only 1% sure about whether I should send it or not, to be honest. It feels stupid, useless, and merely a waste of everyone's time. Privilege as an idea and something tangible versus an abstraction seems relatively new, and as a mid-20s straight white male, I've benefited greatly from this throughout my life. I also believe I'm depressed and riddled with anxiety. However, I'm scared. I'm really scared that I can't take my own mental health issues seriously because of the privileges I've long been afforded. Every day I question whether I have the right to feel how I do because I've been afforded these privileges and continue to benefit from them. I question whether I actually do feel depressed, because how could I? How on earth could I feel like this when so many people have it so much worse than me? Not even extreme false equivalencies, but just general day-to-day life is so much worse for somebody who hasn't stuck to the path society has constructed for us. I'm fearful about wasting doctor's time, wasting friends' time, wasting my own time with how I feel. I'm scared that I continue to not take myself seriously when it comes to these issues, and I become more and more isolated. I don't know how to take my own mental health seriously, and that makes me wonder why anyone else would. And here's what I wrote back. Hey, Ben, this is Anna. I recognize the feelings you're writing about. It's an insidious cycle of shame and guilt. Guilt that pushes us into shame, which makes us feel guilty, which makes us feel more shame. And I recognize that cycle as a fellow privileged white person. And I recognize it from my experience as an addict and alcoholic. 
It's a kind of thinking that kept me sick. It kept me from taking action. It kept me drunk and high. And it kept me abusing my privilege. I spent years, uh, you know, continuing to do drugs and drink because I thought I didn't deserve to get help. And the excuse I gave myself was, look at all the awful things I had done while I was drunk. Obviously, I didn't deserve to get help. I think you, Ben, can see the bad logic there. And the analogy to privilege and depression and anxiety isn't perfect. But I hope that you can see that your mental illnesses are keeping you stuck in a place where your awareness of your privilege isn't doing anyone any good at all. You are woke, but still in bed, feeling guilty about being awake. And wokeness is only useful if you manage to get out of bed. And so, Ben, please do the things that will help you join the living. Recovering from depression and anxiety is worth doing for the mere sake of doing it. But being useful to others is a marvelous added benefit. You seem smart enough to realize that the whole how could I be depressed when there are other people who have it worse line of reasoning is kind of bullshit. It's an insult to everyone who's ever been depressed, including yourself. Depression is an illness. It's a biochemical disease, and it doesn't discriminate. Rich people get depressed. Poor people get depressed. The main difference between the two is that privileged people wind up getting help. And it is true that mental health resources, in this country at least, are not evenly distributed, but it's not as though you getting help would prevent someone else from getting help. In fact, I know that you would be able to be a more effective advocate for other people getting help if you were not wrapped up in your own suffering. You deserve to get help because you're a human being and we all deserve help. But I think you should get help because you're a straight white man who is aware of his privilege and quite frankly, I think we need you in the fight. There aren't a ton of you. You're a rare member of the social justice army who can sneak behind enemy lines and deliver the message, who can serve as an example to those we battle that there is hope for them. I don't think you get to sit this one out, Ben. I'm not saying you need to hurry up and be not depressed because you need to go march somewhere this weekend. I am saying, please... Take all the time you need to get better because you are too valuable to lose because you got back into action before you were ready. Now, that doesn't mean you aren't valuable right now. Like being a woke, straight white guy in this world right now, not necessarily on the front lines, is incredibly important. You can be the guy that says to his coworkers, oh man, you know, that joke was out of line. You can be the guy who can choose to patronize a Black-owned business and then rave about it to his friends. You can be the guy who says, why don't we hear from the woman in the room when no one else does? And all of those things are even more powerful when you do them joyfully. And it is hard to do any of those things if you continue to not take action about your own suffering. But once you do take action... All those things are possible and more. Marching, volunteering, campaigning, undoing the power structure that you're just sitting in right now. Now, none of this is actually a um, substitute for talking to a trained professional. But I hope that some of these thoughts convince you that you should talk to a trained professional. And that you start to believe that you aren't just deserving of help, but that no one benefits from you not getting it. And in fact, your suffering just allows other kinds of suffering to continue. So make that call and write back if you can, maybe in a few weeks when you feel better. Because I know if you take action, you will feel better. And you'll be in the process of making other people's lives better, too.
I hope Ben heard all of that. I know he got the email I sent and he gave permission for us to use this on the air. But you know what? What I really hope is that I heard it because I needed to hear all of that too. Everyone, thanks for listening. Rate and read the show if you can. Send us an email if you like with friendslikepod at gmail.com. And of course, please take care of yourselves and we'll see you next week. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply.